Welcome to the Grazing Grass Podcast, episode 18, where we talk with Austin Unruh. So I'd say that piece of starting small and starting right now is absolutely critical. Today on the podcast, we are making an exception to our normal rule. Our podcast is focused on grass farmers helping grass farmers. Today's guest, while he is not a grass farmer, he has lots to share with grass farmers. Austin Unruh has written numerous articles for OnPasture.com about Silbo Pastures, and we invited him onto the podcast to share about Silbo Pastures for Greasers. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Before we talk to Austin, if you've not subscribed, we encourage you to subscribe. An uh, episode is released every Wednesday on your favorite podcasting app or available at grazinggrass.com. If you happen to be using a podcasting app that the Grazing Grass podcast is not on, drop me a line at cal, C-A-L, at grazinggrass.com and we'll do our best to get our podcast listed there. Austin, we want to welcome you to the Grazing Grass Podcast. We're excited you're here. Cal, thank you very much for having me. Austin, can you tell us a little bit about you and your journey with silvopastures? So my journey to silvopasture is not at all a linear journey. <laughs> um, I guess we'll start, we'll start a couple of years ago, maybe three years ago. I have this this small business where my goal is to help landowners who are who um, who are doing streamside forests. So riparian buffers is the technical term, but streamside forests is is the way that I like to talk about it. Um, and do these plantings here in Pennsylvania. Water quality is a big deal here in Pennsylvania with the Chesapeake Bay and all the the pollution and the dead zone there. So there's a big push to have landowners protect their streamside areas. And most of the most of the work in that in that sector had been just pretty conventional forests where you plant the trees and then you walk away and there's no real interaction with it. And there's no real benefit to the landowner themselves. So I started up this business with the idea of my goal is to help landowners figure out how they can use these streamside forests in a way that's useful to them. So can we figure that? Can we figure out how to make it ideal for hunting if they're a hunter? Can we shoot big buck off of this? Um, can we? Can we grow something that's profitable in this area if that's what they're interested in? Um, can we do something that's just as as low touch and as low um, as easy to man to manage and maintain as possible? That kind of thing, and working with the landowner to figure out how to get these established. Um, so this is this is the the context of the business that I was in um, and that I still run to this day. And while I was talking with landowners, there was a few dairymen in particular who then asked me, um, or they would say to me, planting trees along the streams in this narrow corridor, that's interesting. But how can we get trees established in our pastures? I want trees for shade up there in my pastures. Um, I want trees for, um, for a windbreak. How can I get my trees, get those trees established in the rest of the pasture? And I had to say, well, I don't know. I had learned about silvopasture. I had taken some agroforestry courses, but there weren't really surefire ways to get trees established in a way that didn't really interfere with the running of the grazing operation. Each each way that you could you could fence off a whole row of trees, um, or or you could take land out of production completely and hay it for ten years, but that wasn't very interesting to these farmers. So oh yes yes I didn't know how to get how to get those trees established, and so I started to get into it and I started to learn 
how how to get trees established in a pasture and which trees do best in a pasture. And then from there started to learn what trees can best complement a pasture and a pasture operation. So it's just a, a big long rabbit hole that I've gotten myself sucked into and I don't see any way out of it anymore. <laughs> well, uh, that's a good thing. If if you find it interesting, follow it. Absolutely. And I'm I'm very privileged to be my own boss. So I run my own business and I get to choose wherever I want to go and I get to do that without having to ask anyone. Oh, yes. So very good. One of the things that with Silvopasture that's really interesting to me is that I got into the space of landscape restoration because I wanted to have an impact on on people's livelihoods, but then also on on ecosystems and on um, on our land's health. I wanted to be able to restore land at scale, um, and you can do that through streamside forests. But then silvopasture has just so much more potential for regeneration of the land at scale. Instead of working at two acres at a time on a property, you can work at 20 or 200 or 2,000 at a time. And it has so much more capacity to integrate into a farm and a farm business than these streamside buffers, which tend to be um, separated. They're very separated from the actual business of the farm. There's something we plant and we walk away and we don't really think about them. So silvopasture is, is, has the opportunity to be much more integrated and married into the, the running of a good, healthy, regenerative grazing operation. So it's a whole lot more fun for me to work on. <laughs> so you, you had these farmers come to you and mention it to mention silvopasture to you and what to do about it. Mm -hmm. How did... Or what are the benefits for a farmer to introduce silvopasture? Okay, so I like to look at it this way, is that there are two ways that a farmer can go about introducing trees to a pasture. And I'll say first that my focus is completely on planting trees into open pastures. Oh, okay. You can also take a forest and thin trees. Um, that's totally a possibility. Um, it's just not what I get into. Right. My focus is purely on going from a bare pasture, an open pasture, to a silvopasture. So there's two things that a farmer can, can, two ways, two paths that a farmer can take if they have an open pasture and they want to add trees. One, they can add additional enterprises to their farm. So they can plant pecan trees, or they can plant trees for cider apples, or they can plant, say, pine trees for the timber. So you're taking an existing land base and an existing enterprise, and you're, and you're adding a new enterprise on top of that. Yes. So that's a way for a farm to diversify their income, bringing in, bring in a new type of income stream. Um, it's a way for potentially a farm to earn a whole lot more on the same land base, especially if there's, say, a young person coming in. Um, they want to be able to prepare for the next generation or for the farm to support two or three incomes where previously it only supported one. Okay. So that's that's one option for grazers is to add an ex, add a new enterprise or or multiple enterprises to the pasture operation. The other option is to add trees that are going to support your existing livestock enterprise. And of course these two can both be done at the same time. But those are the two main routes that people can take. The easier of the two is going to be adding trees that support your current livestock operation because then you don't have to get into processing of, say, the pecans and figuring out how to harvest them 
and market them and ship them and all that kind of good stuff that brings extra complexity. Yeah, learn about a whole new enterprise. Oh, it's a whole whole new business. Um, there's a lot more potential there for new income. Yes, yes. And diversification is is very valuable there, but it's a whole new whole new enterprise. Yes. So I like to focus at least in the beginning with grazers on trees that can support their current enterprise. Oh, okay. Those tend to be hardier trees as well. Say, like a black locust or a honey locust is much hardier than say an apple. An apple needs much more coddling in order to, to produce the kind of apples that you want. Oh, very good. I've only just started. <laughs> I have a whole spiel on this one. Oh, no, keep going. Keep going. I'll, I'll be quiet longer. <laughs> so if we look at what trees can go in to, to support your existing enterprise, right, then there's four things that I like to look at there. One is the shade. So every, every grazer understands that shade is very valuable to an operation and can have a huge impact during those summer months. Now, some trees are going to provide better shade than others. So I look for a tree species that can grow really tall because we want that shade to move a lot from morning to evening because the livestock are going to move with that shade and if we have a short stubby tree then all those livestock are going to be right underneath that tree all day long and all their impact and all their manure is going to be right underneath that tree throughout the course of the day. So we prefer a tall tree where that shade and the livestock are going to have to move. We also prefer a tree that has a pretty dappled canopy where a lot of the sunshine goes through the canopy and is able to hit the forages beneath. That's pretty key. If you have, say, a maple tree, maple trees, they collect almost all of the the sunshine and only a small portion gets through. But if you have, say, a black walnut, a lot of that sunshine can get through to hit the forages beneath. Okay. And that's something that's obviously of value to grazers. Um, so shade is, is the one thing that we're going after. Um, windbreak is another one. So the farther north that you go and the farther and the colder it is, the more that windbreak has an advantage to your livestock. Um, conifers obviously provide much better windbreak than do deciduous trees. But if you have rows and rows and rows of deciduous trees, those also provide some matter of windbreak. Um, nitrogen fixation is the third point that that brings value to a silvopasture system. So think of these, these trees out there like a black locust or a honey locust or an alder as just oversized clovers taking atmospheric nitrogen and bringing it down into the soil and then eventually through leaf drop or um, sloughing their roots off, um, they, that, that nitrogen becomes available to the system and the forages around them. So that's nitrogen fixation. And then the last one is extra feed. And I've saved probably the best for last. So in a grazing system, and especially in my area, I don't know your area quite as well, but in my area we have a big peak of forage production in the spring. And then you have your summer slump, and then you have another smaller peak in the fall. Very similar to ours. Yeah, and I think most of, most regions throughout the country, that's that's the case. Yes. A big goal of mine is to figure out how how can we integrate trees in such a way that we can smooth that peak, smooth that, that, that roller coaster ride of forage availability, which really makes livestock and, and grazing more expensive, right? Because you're having to feed outside stuff that either you hay yourself um, or you've had to purchase um, at great expense. Uh, and it just makes grass-fed livestock much more expensive. How do we smooth that out? So in the summer, can we use trees for leaf fodder? And there are a couple different ways to go about that. One is to cut trees and shrubs at a low 
um, right at the ground basically and let them regrow so that livestock can then browse those trees or you can grow your trees to up above um, browse height and that's called pollarding and then you can chop those branches down and make the leaves available when they need it. So it's kind of a, an emergency or a drought feed then because you have these trees that put down really deep roots um, and can access water from, from deeper soil horizons than most of your grasses. So they stay green even during during the summer and during drought. Um, so that's that's a way to reduce some of that of the um, of the feed shortage during the summer, but then the real, at least from from what I know currently and what I can what I can tell right now, the real benefit um, and the biggest place that that trees can the biggest role that trees can play is providing extra feed during the winter. So starting from even the fall. In the fall, you can have persimmons dropping. So late August even, September, October, you can have persimmons drop. And they can go all the way through January. And I'm going to look for trees that drop their fruits in February and March um, because they're out there. They're not common, but if you can find a persimmon tree that will drop fruit in January, February, and March, that's a high sugar, high energy um, supplement for livestock in those in that time of year when there's nothing growing and there's nothing out on the landscape. Oh, so nice. uh, as a means of supplementing that feed, and then if you can have other varieties of persimmon that are dropping fruit in August and September, October, then you can put extra weight on those livestock before, say, their butcher date. Um, so you don't have to bring them through a second winter. Um, or you can just fatten them up so that they're in really good condition going into winter. So that's persimmon. And then honey locust is another one that will drop its pods in usually November and December and into January. And those pods keep well. So it's a stockpiled feed that can stay on the ground for months afterwards. And that's a high energy feed crop right there and there's there's a lot of a lot of feed coming off of that that if you planted enough trees you could actually have more feed available from your tree crops than from your forage crops that you have stockpiled so you can double your your stockpile going into winter and really really reduce your cost of feeding livestock now when you you add those trees, and they're dropping their fruit, persimmons and honey locusts you mentioned there. Do you find all livestock species eat them? Some, some species eat them better? Some of that mm -hmm. fruit drop? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. So when we're looking at ruminants, all ruminants will eat those, those crops. So okay. honey locust and persimmon in particular. Um, hogs will hogs will gobble up persimmons as well. <laughs> yes, I don't know yes. about hogs and honey locust pods, but my guess is that they would eat them. Um, so if you have if you're running hogs in your system or poultry, poultry will pick up um, persimmons. But mostly we're going to be talking to people who are running ruminants. So yes, right. ruminants, all ruminants will will eat these. Yes. Um, Sheep tend to make better use of honey locust pods than do cattle. Oh, okay. Because they can better access the protein that's in the seeds. Because they the seeds of a honey locust, um, they have a hard outer coat that needs to be broken just a bit in order for their digestive system to break it down and access the protein that, that's in there. So sheep teeth, um, from what I've been told... It's the teeth that are able to break the seed coat better than a cow can. So um, sheep make better use of the protein that's in there. So a cow can still make full use of the energy that's in there. And honey locust pods, their energy content can range from about 17% sugars all the way up to 37% sugar oh, wow. in a pod like that. So it's a lot of energy. Um, 
but the cattle can't make as much use of the protein that's in there. Oh, okay. So the energy is available outside of the seed. Exactly. And then the protein you're getting is from the seed. Yep. Yep. Those. And I think you have a video on YouTube talking about some different seed pods. Yep. Yep. And when you when you first pick up a fresh honey locust pod that just fell from the tree or even in the weeks after that um, before it's dried out you can squeeze that that sugar out of there it's like a pudding almost and it's really tasty oh yes i mean if it's tasty if it's tasty enough for me and for for my kids (laughs) you can bet the livestock are gonna love it oh yes i i have to admit it's a paradigm shift for me for honey locusts because we do our best not to have any honey locusts. Yeah. And we view them as invasive mm-hmm. and as a problem species. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yep, because you have you probably have honey locusts that have big thorns. And those thorns are nothing to be messed with. Yes. Um, and also, you don't have much for pods, probably. To be honest, I couldn't tell you. Okay. Yeah, you would notice them probably if, if they had a lot of pods on them. Or, or big, thick, fat one. Well, I'm going to pay closer attention yeah, this yeah. year. Even if you were to go out right yeah. now, uh, at least in January. In my area, we had trees still holding on to pods in January. I, I could see them still being there in January. You know, like we're having this winter weather right now, and we've had the ice, and then we're supposed to get snow. It's really dropping some things. Some of that grass that stockpiled, it's smashed mm-hmm. down. So I'm sure this weather is causing those pods to fall. But in before this, we hadn't had too much that would have caused okay. that. Yeah. So one thing that I'm curious to see is, especially for someone, someone like you that has honey locust on their property, is whether we can take improved varieties of honey locust that don't have thorns and that have really high yields of pods and graft them to your trees. I don't know if that would work with with a big tree with, say, a 12-inch diameter, but small saplings, for sure, you could graft onto them. And then you have the qualities of thornlessness and also really high um, energy yields that can stockpile. So I don't know about that yet. I know that you you can top work and graft um, younger saplings, that wouldn't be a problem. Um, it would just be a matter of either finding someone who, who has that skill or, or acquiring the skill yourself. Well, you, you mentioned grafting and I hadn't thought about, we grafted some pecan trees okay. to try and get some improved varieties on our native pecan trees. Mm-hmm. So does grafting work across most tree species? I don't know about most tree species, but honey locust, it definitely does. Honey locust, persimmon, mulberry. Oh, okay. Um, those are the kind of the main trees that I work with. Though Grafting works with each one of those. Oh, okay. You mentioned, okay, persimmon, honey locust. What kind of densities are you talking about to provide enough to make a difference in the animal's diet? Yeah, that's a great question. And so let's talk about density kind of in general okay um density is with trees it's it's a moving target right because you can plant um you can plant a thousand trees in an acre and in two years you have you have something that's that's good or or three or four years you have you have a system that provides the right kind of shade and maybe you get some fruits off of that as well but a thousand trees an acre is a whole lot and probably much more than you want to do Um, but the benefit of it is that you get to where you want to go in terms of your shade and being able to produce some pods and fruits a whole lot faster than if you plant 10 trees per acre and if you plant 10 trees per acre it's going to be a whole lot it's much easier on your budget oh yes um, but you have to wait a long time in order to get the kind of desired shade and pod or fruit drop effects that you want so somewhere in the middle is where you want to shoot for so 30 to 30 to 100 trees per acre might be a good spot to to be in 
And if I'm going at 100 trees per acre, I'm probably going to put in there some trees that I know I'm going to cull. I'm going to cut them out in 10 years or so. But I'm going to put in some trees that are just there for some really fast shade. So if I'm in some bottomland areas, I might put in a hybrid willow that grows up to be 60 feet tall. And it'll grow up to be 20 feet tall in just three or four years. Um, because I want that quick shade. Um, or I might put some hybrid poplar oh, in yes. there. That's going to provide me some really quick shade, but I know I'm going to cut them out in 10 or 15 years once they get to a certain size um, because I have my other trees that are maybe a little bit slower, but I want them, my say my honey locust and my persimmon, I want them in my system longer. Um, but those hybrid willows or hybrid poplars or mulberries that grow really fast They've done their job by providing shade. They've added more more soil organic matter to the system, more biology, more life to, to the pastures. So they've done their job, and after a certain while, they can be retired and turned into, say, mushroom logs or wood chips or whatever. So um, in terms of the... In terms of shooting for high production on, say, your persimmons and your honey locusts, you'd probably get about maximum production at 40 or 50 trees per acre. And even at that, at that spacing, you're going to have to thin eventually. Say after 20 years, you're going to have to thin out some of your poorer trees. That's all right, because if we're planting seedlings, some of those are going to be male trees. Half of them are going to be male trees. And you want to thin out a lot of your male trees. Um, and you want to leave or either thin them out or you can graft onto them and graft female clones onto those trees so that you get production from those trees um so only the female trees set fruit that's correct yep yep so there's some really neat tricks that you can that you can access through grafting and essentially what that is is just cloning the uh, a variety that you want onto a variety that you don't care so much for so 40 to 50 trees per acre of these honey locusts or persimmon is about where you're going to maximize the amount of fruit drop um, or pod drop. But then I don't think that we want, um, say, a farm that's 100 acres or 200 acres to have um, just persimmons and honey locusts on there. I think we also want to leave in that that diversity of species where we have um, maybe some trees that are just there for shade, um, maybe hybrid willow or hybrid poplar that are there for shade and because they grow fast and they, they add to the biodiversity. Um, walnuts are another, are another useful one or something that provides some, some timber. Tulip poplar is one in our area that is a nice um, shade tree and it could be a nice timber tree. So having a little bit of that biodiversity is also quite useful um, so that we don't have a, a pure monoculture or a, a stand of just two tree species because then we get ourselves in trouble if we have too much of that. Um, black locust yes. is another one that I like to use a lot. Um, but if we can have, I'd say, 50% of our of our planting or more be honey locust and persimmon that's probably the way to go and then for the remaining 50 percent you're talking about those species you've discussed yep yeah and again it's a moving target so in the beginning it might be 50 percent towards the end when it's more of a mature system in 20 to 50 years maybe you have 75 percent of those honey locust and persimmon um, and you have a smaller amount of the of the diversity species oh yes at what point do you start noticing a decrease in grass forage production? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. Um, and I don't know if there is a specific, or I haven't been able to pinpoint a specific spot from looking at literature and being and interviewing people and, and going out in the field and seeing. Um, my guess is that around 30% shade is what I'm going to shoot for. Oh, okay. 30% shade. And this is in the context of cool season forages. 
Oh, okay. Um, if you're in a context where it's warm season perennial forages, um, I don't quite know because I haven't researched that type of forages so much. But in the context of cool season forages, about 30% shade is what I'm going to shoot for. And again, there we're ha- we're, the goal is to have shade that is pretty dappled. So there's a lot of light coming through the canopy still hitting those, those forages um, so that they're not going from, say, a dense shade to a bright sun right away. Oh, yes. And being shocked in that in that manner, um, so my goal would be about that thirty forty percent shade. Anything beyond fifty, it looks like you start to see real decreases in the production of your cool season forages. And obviously, when you get up to seventy percent and whatnot, it's the the production goes way down. Um, but that's not what we're looking to pro- to create and. And that's where management becomes significant for the grazer is that they have tools that they can use to manage that shade to get it into the the window that they that they want and that's useful for their their forages. So you can cold trees, you can just pull them out if you want. You can um, trim them up. So oh, that yes. you cut off the lower branches so that more light can get underneath the canopy and get through to the forages. So you can make that, that canopy move up. Um, there's all kinds of different ways. You could even say if you had a hybrid willow and it got to be 5, 10 years old and it was starting to, to create more shade than you want, you can cut it off at 6 feet high and let it regrow from there and then if you have a drought you can cut those branches off and drop them for your livestock and they'll be they'll be grateful for it so there's all kinds of different ways that you can manage those trees in a way that gets the ideal levels of shade and the ideal spacing of shade throughout the paddock so that the shade moves throughout the day and the livestock move throughout the day um yeah there's there's complete freedom there to to manage that and and work with it to your needs. Very good. And what you're going on there, it's easier to cut or remove some of that shade than it is to add shade. Yes, it is. Yep. Yep. Because if exactly. you're adding shade, you're adding trees. It's going to take longer. Yep. Yeah. Yes, indeed. By planting trees, you give yourself more options in the future. If you plant trees now and you decide later on, well, I only need half of these. And you can cut half of them. But if you don't plant any, well, you don't have any shade 10 years down the road. Yes. Yeah. Now, when I think about planting these trees, and I'm looking at this on open pasture, am I just planting a row of multiple rows of trees so far apart? How is that typically done? And how do you figure that spacing? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if there's a real typical yet. So (laughs) I'll say that the, the way... The way that I've done silvopasture and the way that I focus on it is pretty much different from anyone else that I've read or or conversed with to date. Most people that work in work towards silvopasture are foresters and they want to see timber production. And so there's a whole bunch of literature developed on how to get trees established for timber production. But I don't think that most grazers want to be in the timber business. Yes. And many, in many cases, actually, timber is planted, and 20 years later, when that timber is ready to harvest, the market for that timber is gone. That's happened much too often, whether that's Christmas trees or pine trees for timber or whatever it is oftentimes that market's gone. So what is established out there in the literature is not what I would suggest so much. Um, so the trees that I want to plant are the high value trees that are going to be there for a long time because they provide real value to the livestock. Um, so honey locust, persimmons, that kind of thing. So with that big caveat, um, let me get to the question and say <laughs> the way that I've, that I've worked with 
grazers to date is mostly in straight rows because it just makes it a whole lot easier to manage and mm -hmm. to figure out the width of the, the row we figure out what machinery do you use to manage your your farm so one of the one of the projects that i did this fall was um was a pretty sizable dairy in this area and they clip their pastures and the mower that they're going to be clipping with is 30 feet wide so we needed our rows to be a multiple of 30 feet wide so we went with 60 feet between the rows oh yes another farm the biggest machinery that they had was a manure spreader and the manure spreader would spread 40 feet wide so we went with 40 foot rows that's how we determine what row spacing it, that we use. It tends to be that the the more narrow you can have your rows, the more even your shade is going to be. Okay. Because if you have um, if you have a hundred feet between your rows, um, you can have trees really really dense in that row, but then your your shade is going to be focused on those rows and it's not going to move into the center of your row. So your livestock on a hot day are all going to be bunched up against that, that row 100, 100 feet apart. Um, they won't be active in the middle of that pasture. So the more that you can get your rows closer, the better it is for a well-spread um, well out shade. But that doesn't all have to happen at once. So if you want, you can put your rows 100 feet apart. And then in a few years, once those rows are established and those trees are off and, and ready to be not protected anymore, then you can put rows, new rows of trees right down the center so that you end up having 50 feet spacing between your rows of trees. Um, so there's ways that we can um, we can evolve into a mature silvopasture system and that's what i want anyone to do is i want them to think of this as this is a long-term project to add trees to my system rather than me go out and plant all of my trees at once we we recognize that this is an evolving system as we learn how to use the trees um, and we we have a couple years of experience and then we can we can steadily build on what we've done before you plant those trees how are you protecting them from your livestock yeah so the way that i've found to be most useful and the way that i can interfere the least with the existing grazing operation is i take a a um, tree shelter so plastic tree shelter with a fiberglass stake and the fiberglass stake is pretty important because that fiberglass allows that tree shelter to to flex um, and that's that's the foundation for what I start with so I put that around my tree and then I still need to protect that shelter from being rubbed on and either barbed wire will do it so if you wrap say six to eight feet of barbed wire around that tree shelter that'll keep livestock from rubbing up against the shelter um, or if you have your trees spaced in a row then you can use a single strand of electric to keep livestock from rubbing against the shelter so that's that's what I've found to be the most the most useful means of protecting trees without completely changing the way that the land is managed or the cattle are rotated or taking land out of production because that's a common prescription for getting silvopasture started is to just um, plant your rows of trees and you hay in between and you keep your livestock away for the eight to ten years until they're mature enough to have livestock come back into the system and that's just a non-starter for a lot of people <laughs> yes yes now your your tree shelters you talked about is that something you buy or is mm -hmm. that something you can make no um unless you're quite handy and you have some very special machinery i don't think you can make <laughs> oh, okay. it okay that's that's something that you buy so yes. it's called a, a plantra tree shelter that's okay. the brand of it okay diving in a little bit deeper on these tree shelters 
you get this sap, sapling yeah. that's 12 inches tall and you plant it. How tall is your tree shelter mm-hmm. on that? And can it be taller than your sap sapling? Oh, absolutely. Yep. So I, as a standard, I use a six-foot tree shelter. Oh, okay. Yep. So it's just a tube is what it is, and it has ventilation drilled in it. And I use six feet because that tends to, that can protect against basically all all livestock except for horses. Oh yes. Um, if, if you're only running, say sheep, you can get away with a five foot shelter, but six foot is is standard for what I need. Um, so you you put a six foot tree shelter on there, and in my experience, that little twelve inch seedling that you start out with depending on the species, can grow to four at least to up to, I've had trees grow up to 12 feet tall in a single season, oh, starting wow. from 12 inches, go up to 12 feet. And a large part of that is because that tree shelter provides a greenhouse effect. It provides a, um, a nice climate, a nice microclimate for those trees to grow in while they're young and so they can really get established in that first season oh okay not all your trees are going to get to 12 feet right that's for sure right but some species can like black locust is the one that for me grows the fastest of of all my trees oh yes and you're leaving that tree shelter on till they reach a certain size or what's the process with removal that's something i don't quite know yet when when these trees will be um, will be strong enough to stand up against rubbing by by livestock. Oh yes, and especially by your larger livestock like cattle. Um, I just haven't been in it long enough to to see exactly when the right time is for that. It'll depend on your management. So if your if your rows of trees are um, are on the boundaries of a paddock. And you can still protect those trees with, say, a single strand of electric fencing as your paddock boundary. Then you can take those shelters off pretty soon, say in year three, because you're still protecting those trees with electric fencing. But if you take the shelters off and you don't provide any kind of protection, my guess is you'll need at least five years till those trees are are strong enough that they don't get pushed over by um by a big bull that wants to scratch himself jumping back just a little bit you you talk about tree shelter Mm -hmm. five years how how long is it till these trees seedlings produce fruit and i and i assume that's going to be Mm -hmm. species specific but what kind of range are we looking at yep yeah so Around seven years is what um, is what is often quoted. Is the seven years is is the time frame that I see the most written about for persimmons and honey locusts. Oh, okay. Now, if you provide really good conditions for them, my guess is you can move that down to say five years. I've seen, let's see, three-year-old persimmons bear fruit. Oh, yes. Now they're small. Right. And there's not there's not many of them at three years old, but I have seen a few three year old persimmons bear fruit. So I'd say anywhere from five to nine years is is what you realistically should expect. Okay. And what kind of management are you providing for these seedlings to get going? I know we have a lot of pecan orchards mm-hmm. here, or pecan orchards depends where you're from, and the pecan orchards have the buckets set out by the trees so they can water them are these requiring a lot of management on water or what kind of management do they require to get going you know in my area i don't water anything now i live in an area where we have pretty consistent water available to us Um, it's going to depend on your species so honey locust in particular is just really tough and once it gets some roots established it's fine well, I do know jumping in there. I I do know with honey locusts, it's a it's a battle to keep them back. So yes, I imagine it goes good. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> oh yeah, they're they're tough. They're they tough, are. aren't they? And at least from my perspective, 
I would like to I would rather work with something that wants to live and use the tools to to harness that species in the direction that I want it to go, say by by grafting onto it and grafting really high quality pods on a really good deep set of roots that go 20 feet down into the ground, um, then try to baby a tree that doesn't want to live yes. and just needs a lot of care for years and years. Um, so there are means of, of taking those wild, strong, vigorous trees and taming them. Yes. One very valuable thing is that the better you can care for your tree in year one and the better you can set your tree up, the less aftercare you'll have to do. So one thing that I do for all my trees is I mulch them pretty heavy. So I'll put, say, six inches of wood chip mulch around the base. Oh, okay. Um, and say a foot in diameter. So that does a lot to conserve the moisture right around that tree. And it also suppresses competing vegetation for the first year or two. So that goes a long ways towards giving that seedling the head start that it needs to really get going and, and to send its roots down and not be affected by, say, a drought in the first year. And so that you don't have to be out there in the pasture watering it um, every couple of days during a drought. Getting your trees established in year one, that's the most critical part. Um, and ideally, choose trees that choose trees and locations that you can plant them take care of them pretty well and then walk away yes um unless there's a terrible drought that was unforeseen but otherwise if you choose your species and your location right you should be all right to fairly well walk away and and then just do say once annual or twice annual maintenance, especially in those first couple of years, check in on the tree, maybe pull up the shelter, see is there are there weeds that are choking out the tree. If there are, just pull them out. Um, have the livestock been rubbing up on the tree and and crack the the tree shelter over. Um, then you have to do maintenance on oh, that. Yes. But if you if you set things up right in the beginning, you'll really benefit from it in the years going forward. So Austin, if we have a producer that's listening to this and they're thinking, hey, Austin's making a pretty good argument here that I need to add some trees. Where are they going to go to, to even get started on this journey? So two places. Um, well, one, treesforgrazers.com. So that's, that's the website that I run. And as it says, it's specifically for grazers and and all the materials there are intended to help grazers figure out how can I integrate trees into my system. So treesforgrazers.com is a great starting place. Um, and then the second thing that I would tell someone is to start small and to start right now. Um, so this spring, you can go out and just plant 10 trees. And plant those 10 trees in a place that you're going to see often so that you can observe those trees closely and gain that confidence and gain that experience in knowing I can start a tree um, and I can get that started in my pasture. And then once you've had those first 10 or 50 that you've, that you've successfully started, and even if you haven't successfully started them, if you, if you kill half of them, well, you've learned right <laughs> yes. there. And then you can adjust accordingly. And it's much better to kill five of your first 10 than it is to kill 500 of your first 1,000. <laughs> yes. um, so hands-on experience is worth so much in this. So if you start small, the risk is super low. Um, and by starting now, you can, you can gain the experience so that as you, um, as you gain more knowledge and gain more insight then you can plan a larger planting and start to integrate trees into more of your grazing operation. Very good. Austin, we've reached the point in our podcast where we have our famous four questions. It's the same four questions we ask of every guest. Very good. Our first question, and we're going to adjust them just a little bit to be more silvopasture focused, but what's your favorite silvopasture-related book or resource? 
So my favorite book related to silvopasture is called Tree Crops. It was written back in 1929 by a gentleman named J. Russell Smith. And it's a book that I return to time after time after time for inspiration. So this was a gentleman writing during the time of the Dust Bowl. And he would he traveled all throughout the world, in essence, looking at how different cultures used trees in their agricultural landscapes. And so he writes about trees for human food and trees for livestock feed. Um, and it's just a fantastic resource um, that I have. I've probably bought 10 copies of it and given <laughs> most of them away. Well, in, in full disclosure, I read uh, Tree Crops last year or the year before, but I read it on my Kindle. And, and I just found it a little bit okay. difficult to follow. So after talking to you a few weeks ago, I purchased me a hard copy. Yeah, definitely buy a hard <laughs> copy. The book is written in a way that there's a ton of notes. Um, there's a lot of notes and quotes in it. And depending on the print, and some prints are better than ever, uh, than others, and I can send you a link to the one that I like the most. Oh, because that'd be great. I've, I've bought all of them. Oh, yes. I can tell you I've bought every single version of it. And I even had, when I couldn't find them, other than um, copies that were $200, I went to a friend of mine who has a, print, a printing business, and I had him print one up for me. So I have every single um, variety. Oh, yes. And depending on how it's printed, um, it can be it can make a world of a difference of being able to figure out what, who's talking oh, yes. um, or what is the main text and what are notes. Yeah. I, the, with the Kindle version, I enjoyed it, but I, I struggled with comprehension of some of it. Just, I thought it was hard to follow and stuff. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Send us that link. That'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. So as an aside, that, tree crops is the podcast that I would do. Um, or if I were to do a podcast and I'm, I very much think I will eventually here when I have some free time <laughs> yes. is to basically just, just read that book and make that available as free audio for anyone who wants to just put on their headphones, sit on the tractor oh, yes. and re and listen to and learn about say honey locust or persimmon or mulberry or pecan or oaks or whatever it is. I think that sounds like a wonderful idea. It'd be pretty simple, which would be a nice place to start for me. <laughs> it, yes. Yes. Our second question, what tool could you not live without? I would say that that would be the plantra tree shelter. So it's just made getting a tree established in a pasture so much easier. Um, before I started my research, there was all kinds of pretty unhandy means of getting a tree established. Either you took a lot of land out of production, or you had to fence off a whole strip of trees, and then you had you lost some production, and you had to get in there and, and either mow or weed whack or whatever, um, and it provided it was extra labor. Um, or there are these these. Um, contraptions that had metal spikes sticking out of all different angles and sure they worked <laughs> but they they took a toll in blood every time that you set them up um, oh, and yes. it was it was a pain and a half to to do them so planter tree shelters are i couldn't get trees established um as easy as i can without them oh yes on our third question what do you wish you knew or what would you tell someone just starting out? We may have covered that just a little bit ago and starting small, but do you have something more to add to that? So I'd say that piece of starting small and starting right now is absolutely critical. Um, and, and that's that's in every part of life, isn't it? Like um, if you're oh, yes. just getting into grazing or if you're just getting into, for me, it was... And several years ago when I started my business, I put a couple hundred dollars into it and I started with just one gig and from there it grew and grew and grew and grew. Um, so not having the fear of starting and 
deciding I'm just going to jump into it. I know I'm going to make mistakes. I know it's not all going to go my way, but I'm going to get into it and learn through experience. Excellent advice that applies to so much. Just get started. Yep. Like podcasting. Yeah, exactly. Austin, where can others find out more about you? I would say go to treesforgrazers.com. And that's where you're going to find some more about me. Although in this podcast, you'll learn more about me than what's on the website. Um, But that's how you can get in contact with me. That's where you can um, get get information that I've written. So I've written articles. I also link to other resources that are available online. I've put together a handbook for, um, for grazers. So giving pretty detailed steps of, of how to get trees established in a pasture and how to think through what species to use and that kind of thing. So there's a ton of resources on the website and there's going to be more coming all the time as I put out more articles and I'm able to assemble more resources for people. Or that's also where people can sign up for my mailing list in which I'll let people know when these high quality trees become available. So one thing that we didn't talk about, um, and I'll just say real quick, is that genetics matter a, a good bit when we're talking about these trees. So you have experience with honey locust trees that are really thorny and they don't produce produce much for pods. So genetics make yes. a really big difference here. There's trees out there that are completely thornless and that produce lots of pods and that's the genetics that you want. Um, similar for persimmons. There's persimmons out there that will produce fruit that's not really worth a whole lot and then there's those that will produce really heavy and at the times of year that you want. So that's treesforgrazers.com is where people can sign up for um, for my newsletter. And then I'll let people know when those become available because I grow them out. Oh, very good. And I have been to your website. I've read your, your handbook, which is great. I have not made it through all the resources you provide. You provide a lot. Good. Yep. Well, that's that's what I hope to be able to do. There's a lot there to dig through. And you don't have to get all into it right away. It's one of those things where um, you you learn best through experience, right? So you get some information and you yes. go out and you plant your 10 trees and then you observe them and then you, you keep going back and you keep going back and just chewing away at, at that information and, and just getting what's digestible at, in one sitting and then ruminating on it, right? Um, because, right. like you said, this is, this is very much a paradigm shift. of the, Usually what people have done is they've cleared out trees from a pasture in order to improve it, right? That's the way, um, that's the way it's been done for generations. Right is you remove trees from a pasture. Um, and so there's a lot to be learned about trees and how they can integrate into a, um, a pasture system. And there's no way to, to learn it all and to have it all sink in right away. Um, or even in the first year, it's going to take a lot of observation and, um, and just noticing and experiencing things as you try it firsthand. And as you try it and as you gain more experience with it, you'll figure out how this can best be applied to your context and the way that you run your livestock and the way that you, um, the way that your landscape works. Excellent advice there, Austin. Austin, we really appreciate you coming on the podcast. I think you've shared some valuable information with us and given us a path to gain more knowledge. Thank you, Austin. Thank you very much for having me, Cal. I appreciate it. I trust that you found this episode with Austin as valuable as I have. In fact, he's encouraged me enough that I plan on planting a few trees this year to try. See how it goes. The show notes contain links to products and books mentioned in the episode. If you want to purchase one of those books, I encourage you to shop at a local bookseller. However, if they do not have the book, 
feel free to click on our link in the show notes for Amazon. If you do buy it through Amazon, after clicking on the link, the Grazing Grass Podcast gets a little bit of money back. So we appreciate those of you that have done that, and we encourage others to do that. You just listen to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. Keep grazing grass. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I know I did. Thank you for listening. And if you found something useful, please share it. Share it on your social media. Tell your friends. Get the word out about the podcast. Helps us grow. If you happen to be a grass farmer and you'd like to share about your journey, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest. Fill out the form and I'll be in touch. We appreciate your support by sharing our episodes and telling your friends about it. You can also support our show by buying our merch. We get a little bit back from that. Another way to support the show is by becoming a Grazing Grass Insider. Grazing Grass Insiders enjoy bonus content, monthly Zooms, and discounts. You can visit the website, grazinggrass.com, click on support, and they'll have the links there. Also, if you haven't left us a review, please do. It really helps us as people are searching for podcasts. And I was just checking them, and we do not have very many reviews for 2024. So if you haven't left us a review, please do. Until next time, keep on grazing grass.